Welcome to Nostalgia Marcana. I'm your host, Doug Leaf. Each episode of this podcast, we will look back on the pop cultural ephemera that remains in our cultural zeitgeist today and try to understand why we remain enchanted all these years later. This week, we will be revisiting... Be afraid. No. Be afraid. Be very afraid. As we are recording this episode, uh, there is a bug bite that's been on my hand since Monday. It's uh, itchy and gross, uh, and for a while when I squeezed it, there was this stuff that came out of it. And uh, it's a fitting reminder (laughs) of this week's subject... The fly, not just because it's icky, um, but because it, it reminds us one that insects and biology are all around us, and that our bodies have all sorts of magnificent ways of breaking down. Uh, now, the fly, uh, where we will talk about the origins of this, the original movie and short story, as well as uh, the the large amount of time we're going to focus on the uh, David Cronenberg movie, which is the focus of the episode. Um, but I think just to start up top, uh, there's a good reason to be covering this in Halloween time, not just because it's spooky and, uh, you know, it fits the, the Halloween theme, um, but because this movie it will haunt you. This is a movie that once you see it will stay with you uh, for days after you watch it. And I, I find myself thinking about it Kind of a lot. Um, now, this is a nostalgia podcast, so I think the best place to start is with my personal memories of The Fly. Now, I don't have any childhood memories of the movie directly, um, but it did loom large in my childhood in one way, in that this was my dad's stand-in for a movie that was uh, not too much for me to watch. Whenever he would make a joke about, like, oh, you know, we should watch something family-friendly, like The Fly. It was always the punchline for something that I was not old enough for. Uh, and then I finally did see it, uh, I think in my late teens, and uh, I don't know that I was old enough for it then. And, you know, I kind of don't know if I'm old enough to see this movie now at 42, even though I, of course, have watched it many times since then. Um, but really, the movie is notable for its intensity. And it's really powerful emotions and themes that make it go above and beyond your average gore fest. And make no mistake, the movie is extremely gross and gory. Um, This is, uh, when people ask for an example of body horror, um, it's pretty much this one and John Carpenter's The Thing, neck and neck. Those are your two choices for the most gross-out body horror you can imagine. And there's other stuff that's tried to come close, like Slither um, and and uh, some of Cronenberg's other movies involve this, uh, the Hellraiser franchise. But for my money, The Fly tops the list. Not just because the gross-out effects are very, very convincing and effective, um, but because the emotional heart of this movie is so strong, it makes you really invest in these characters and the themes so that when we finally reach this climactic moment of 
uh, truly insane stuff, um, it, you know, it, it hits harder than anything else in the genre. So before we get too far down the road, why don't we start with some general stuff about this story, where it comes from, uh, how the movie got made, and then kind of delve into the, the themes in it. Um, the story started life as a short story written by a gentleman named George Langeland. I don't know if I pronounced that correctly, that was published in Playboy magazine in 1957. Uh, this was back when, in the early days of Playboy, when Hugh Hefner had envisioned it as, hey, what if we did The New Yorker, but with titties? And uh, so it was full of these, you know, as much as it had centerfolds and pinups um, and boobs, uh, it also had, you know, these erudite think pieces, uh, and as well as fictional bits like this one. And it, the short story... Uh, tells the story of a woman who is uh, arrested for the murder of her husband. She has crushed his head and his hand or her arm in a uh, some sort of a machine press, and she you know admits that she did that, but she won't explain why. Uh, the victim's brother, her brother-in-law, is called in, and he uh, tries to talk to her and find out what really happened, and she's willing to confide in him. And through this, we get the story that her husband was a brilliant scientist who invented a teleportation machine um, where you could walk into one box uh, and disappear and reappear uh, in another one, you know, transmit your matter. And unfortunately, during one of his experiments, he went in there. There was also a fly in the, in the booth that he did not notice. And uh, when he came out, his head and arm had been swapped with that of the flies, although he still retained his brain and consciousness. Um, that part of the story is a little murky. He then sets about trying to catch the fly, put this right, um, but ultimately he can't, and is uh, uh, the wife has to put him down. The movie was made the following year, starring uh, Vincent Price, connecting back to our thriller episode, um, and Vincent Price uh, is excellent, as he always is. Mm, yes. um, but the movie basically tracks the Langalon story pretty closely, and it doesn't really have any resonant themes. It's just the story of uh, this man who undergoes a scientific accident and becomes a monster. Fairly standard 50s B-movie fare. It's notable, of course, for the scene at the end, where after um, the scientist has been crushed, they finally find the fly, uh, the other end of the, the accident, stuck in a spider's web screaming, help me, help me, at which point the police inspector crushes that being with a rock to spare him uh, the death of being eaten by a spider. Uh, there's a very funny story that the scene that follows, um, Vincent Price and his co-star could barely get through this scene without laughing because the dialogue is so ridiculous. So I have to put in a clip of that here because you have to hear it to believe it. It's really, you can imagine these experienced actors getting the pages with these lines on them and trying to get through this. So uh, here we go. A little bit of the speech from the end of the fly. As God is my witness, I saw the thing. It's unbelievable. I shall never forget that scream as long as I live. You've committed murder just as much as Helene did. You killed a fly with a human head. She killed a human with a fly head. If she murdered, so did you. I know. Who's going to believe us here? Think we're both mad. 20th Century Fox uh, made the original uh, Vincent Price fly 
And by the 80s, they decided they wanted to remake it. Um, it came to a producer named Stuart Kornfeld. This was his baby. And he uh, hired a screenwriter named Chuck Pogue to do a treatment of the script. And he created a version of the script. Um, and it had, it, at its core, it's very, very different from the, the final product that we got in the, the Cronenberg version. But one of its key innovations that really uh, is the core of the whole thing is that the scientist in it undergoes, undergoes a gradual mutation into a fly creature rather than a sudden swap of body parts. Uh, this is important for several reasons. One, it maximized the amount of time that the scientist could make himself understood. Um, in, in the 1950s version, because he has a fly head, he, the scientist can't talk. So he occasionally scrawls things on a chalkboard and such, but he's you know basically mute for a good chunk of the movie. And that really robs the audience of of his point of view, which of course is going to be fascinating. That's the core of the thing. So that was the key innovation that Chuck Pogue brought to it. Um, they brought the script to 20th century Fox and they passed. They didn't like it at all. And so producer Kornfeld says, well, look, um, you just let me make the movie. You, you distribute the movie and let me worry about the money to actually make it. And with that 20th century Fox said, okay, you know, for us, the bar to entry is pretty low. You do what you want, as long as you can come up with the money to make this thing. Stuart Kornfeld had a relationship with, of all people, funny man Mel Brooks from working on The Elephant Man uh, in 1980 or 81, which Mel Brooks had also produced. Um, not everything Mel Brooks, I mean, everything Mel Brooks personally did, his scripts and his movies that he directed, were the greatest comedy of, uh, of all time. But when it came to producing, he didn't feel like he had to stick to his uh, genre, so... Uh, the Elephant Man was his, and so Stuart Kornfeld came back to him and said, let's do The Fly. And Mel Brooks liked the idea. Uh, he hated Chuck Pogue's script. He was really, really pissed about it. And then Stuart Kornfeld talked to him a little bit and found out he had really only read the first 10 pages. And Kornfeld said, well, stick with it after that. And so Brooks finished the script. And he said, okay, there's, there is good stuff in here. Um, but, you know, I, he still very much hated this version of it. So the thing went through some rewrites. Um, they went to director David Cronenberg because he was their first choice to do it based on the body horror elements um, that, you know, uh, his earlier movies like Scanners and Videodrome had a lot of this. Uh, and, but unfortunately, he was attached at that time to what would eventually become Total Recall. So they went to another director, John Bierman. And John Bierman was fairly far along into the process of pre-production when he suffered a terrible family tragedy. His daughter was uh, killed in an accident while they were on vacation. And so they took a three-month pause on the production, which was kind of unheard of, but Mel Brooks, being the mensch that he is, said, I'll give you three months to figure out what you want to do. And Bierman took the three months, but at the end of the three months, he said, you know what, I I, I just can't. Uh, you know, I'm still, in my, in my head is not in the space to make this movie. I would want to make this movie great, and I just can't do that, especially given the dark subject matter. And Mel Brooks said, it, you know, it's okay, I understand. He could have held him to the contract. They had him under contract. But again, Mel Brooks, ultimate mensch. So now they were without a director. But as it turned out, Cronenberg uh, and Total Recall had had a falling out. So suddenly he was available, the stars aligned, and they decided, let's make this movie. 
Um, they went through a bunch of actors and they found Jeff Goldblum, uh, which uh, he was not the first choice for the uh, special effects and makeup wizard. Uh, his name is Chris Wayless, and he is responsible for all of the cool stuff you see in the fly. His, his re- requirement was like, get me someone who doesn't have like a prominent bridge on their nose or big ears or anything because the, I, I need freedom to do stuff with the makeup. So then they went and found Mr. Schnoz, Jeff Goldblum, and they said, well, I guess we'll make it work because he's a brilliant actor. Um, Goldblum then strongly pushes for his then-girlfriend, Gina Davis, to audition. And uh, she was the first person to audition. They were nervous about casting Goldblum's real-life girlfriend because, obviously, workplace romance is difficult, uh, and they'd already had enough problems with the production. But she blew everybody else out of the water with her audition. Uh, And so the second part of the love triangle was set. And then finally they brought in John Getz, who I had to confirm was not the officious asshole uh, from Ghostbusters. Uh, He just sure looks a lot like him and uh, plays very similar characters. But one of the things I think is really cool about The Fly is that it's almost a stage play. You really only have these three main characters. You have Seth Brundle, played by Jeff Goldblum. Uh, Veronica Quaif, played by uh, Gina Davis, and Stathis Borens, played by John Getz. And I tried to research where the name Stathis Borens came from because it's super fucking weird. Could not figure out for the life of me why uh, the Cronenberg, who final rewrite of the script, it was his, uh, who he did the last pass on it, um, came up with that name. He renamed all of the characters, um, and I'm not entirely sure where that came from. Um, the Fly um, then went into production. It was ultimately a hit. And uh, it, I think I understand why um, it connected with audiences in 1986. Uh, one of the themes in it is it's really, a, you can argue it's an analog or a stand in for um, death and, you know, uh, terminal illness. Seth Brundle, if you took away all of the fantastical sci-fi elements, this is a story of a man's body breaking down and you know, uh, as he approaches death and how that affects the, the woman he loves um, and his relationship with her. Uh, there were some who saw this as a parallel to the AIDS uh, epidemic, especially in the 80s. Uh, and Cronenberg, he didn't reject that. He said, look, if you have that experience, basically that, you know, I, I wouldn't, that that's understandable. That fits, but it fits because I think the theme of disease encompasses many diseases, you know, not just AIDS, this would apply to anyone. Um, and I think this is one of the most universal things about the movie, because if you're lucky, something like this will happen to you. If you don't die suddenly from something violent or, you know, unexpected, um, you know, just heart attack that takes you off the map like that. Um, this is the best you can hope for a slow descent towards death, uh, filled with your body betraying you along the way. So this is an incredibly, um, universally applicable thing. We've all either struggled with illness or known somebody who has struggled and ultimately succumbed to it. We've all watched our loved ones, uh, you know, waste away from cancer or lose themselves to dementia. Uh, and part of what makes body horror work is that it preys on our sense of mortality and the fallibility of our bodies. Um, it's something we don't like to think about as we go through our everyday you know, life, 
but it's there in the back of your mind that, you know, nobody gets out alive. Um, and this movie kind of like shoves your nose in it and says like, you are going to die and it's going to suck and it's going to be awful. Um, let me kind of go over the basic beats of the movie and you'll see kind of how this all fits together. So, um, I, I think it's best to kind of tackle this. I, I'm not going to go scene by scene, but I'll kind of go beat by beat. Um, so we open, uh, the movie and, uh, we open with this great shot of people milling about, but it's all shot in this weird filter. So you can kind of only make out silhouettes and it's sort of evocative of like, maybe this is how uh, an insect sees the world, uh, you know, because their compound eyes would have different vision than us. Um, but we immediately go to this party, uh, for scientists, um, where Veronica, who is a journalist is interviewing, uh, Seth Brundle, who convinces her to come back to his apartment based on the promise that he's working on something that will truly revolutionize, um, uh, modern life. Uh, some, some, some gigantic invention that he's come up with. Um, we learn a couple things about him. One of them is other than the fact that the invention is of course a, a teleportation machine where, uh, you've got these pods that go from, you know, you go in one and you come out the other. Uh, he invented that because he gets very motion sick. So already we're, we're getting into our bodies suck, right? Maybe we can do something with science about the fact that our bodies are unreliable. Uh, and there are a number of metamorphoses in this movie, other than just the obvious physical change that Brundle goes through, uh, that's the, the spine of the plot. I think in the first act, he undergoes a, a, a little transformation. He uh, transforms you know, from into being a human. Uh, we learn several things about him that he is sort of divorced from humanity. He, he clearly has very, no social life, no friends. We find out that he always wears the same clothes, not because he wears the same thing over and over literally. He just has like five different copies of the exact same outfit in his closet so he doesn't have to think about what to wear. Um, he lives at his lab, which is in this sort of semi-dilapidated uh, loft. Um, you know, he's he's not living life as a person, and he becomes more human through his budding romance with Veronica. Um, the other cool thing we get at this, well, there's, oh, sorry, before we move on to that, there's the other transformation in the movie is that of Stathis, who starts out the movie as kind of a monster. He is Veronica's ex-boyfriend. Um, also her boss and like a former mentor, they're all, they're all kind of, they were all kind of tangled at one point and he won't really get out of her life. He's very, you know, brusque with her. He is sort of possessive and histrionic and like immediately you're like, this guy is a colossal douchebag, but by the end of the movie, he's heroic. And they do that because as, as he, be, as Brundle becomes more monstrous, Stathis becomes more human and not to the point where, um, you want her Veronica and Stathis to get back together, but it redeems him a little bit, you know, as like, okay, he's, he's got some, some decent, there's a decent person inside of him somewhere. Um, getting back to, uh, what I was about to say before red flags, the movie starts throwing out lots of red flags about the science. Um, the, the thing that Seth is working on, uh, number one, uh, Seth it comments that, you know, one, this is all done via, you know, it's a computer that, uh, controls the teleportation process. And of course the computer is dumb. The computer only knows to, what to do because of what Brundle programs it to do. So right away, we're already worried about like, uh Oh, what, what hasn't he thought of 
in the <laughs> what what in the computer programming is lacking. Um, he throws out that there is a uh, he's got this prototype third pod, which is a uh, you know establishing something for the end of the movie. But yes, he has a third pod that doesn't work particularly well. Um, it was his prototype. He says it works, but it is uh, clunky. Um, something like, he uses a word like that to describe it. Um, we also learn that he is yes, he's putting all of this together, but he also doesn't fully understand how everything works because he outsources a lot of the bits and pieces of the device. He'll go to someone and say, I want you to build me, quote, a molecular analyzer this, right? Uh, or a particle accelerator that. And then they send this stuff to him and then he puts it all together, which, you know, he's doing for secrecy purposes, but also it, it means that, you know, maybe this would be better done with a team that would better predict um, what this computer should or should not do. And of course, the most important red flag is sent up immediately where he says, this thing does not transport living matter. Um, it can transport an inanimate object just fine. He demonstrates this by uh, teleporting her, uh, her stocking. But when it comes time to teleport a living thing, he, you know, first he tells her, oh, not while we're eating. I'm not going to tell you what it does. But later he shows us. He puts a baboon in there, uh, and it goes through the machine and comes out in basically inside out. This is one of our. This is the first truly horrific body horror thing in the movie. Is seeing this squirming inside out baboon puppet. Uh, so we're already we're worried about you know putting living things through this. He has a conversation with her where she says, "Oh well, you know." Uh, after they've begun their romantic relationship, which is, you know, um, old ladies go crazy for the flesh. They, you know, they go and pinch little kids on their cheeks and stuff. And this sparks an idea that he needs to teach the computer the poetry of uh, that, the steak, as he said, the, the poetry of the flesh, um, and make the machine go crazy for flesh. This is an idea that's in a lot of Cronenberg's movies. It comes from one of his mentors, which was uh, Marshall McLuhan, who's a, a kind of a thinker. Um, but there's definitely this idea throughout body horror that flesh is this malleable substance, and there's a fascination with the kinds of crazy ways you can stretch and uh, you know distort a human body. Um, this is definitely at play in The Thing. Uh, it's definitely at play in Hellraiser. Um, those are two big franchises or, or, or movies or, that deal with the kind of rending and uh, reconfiguration of the flesh. Um, this is, at least in my eyes, this is meant to be a terrifying concept. I remember my first brush with body horror, and this is one of the few kinds of horror that really stick with me, um, was seeing Superman 3, <laughs> Christopher Reeve and Richard Pryor masterpiece. Um, but it, it, towards the end of the movie, this woman is uh, sucked into this like evil computer that then turns her into a robot. You see like circuitry being like just jammed into her skin and like wires and stuff. And she comes out all silvery. And I'm sure that it's really like hokey and stupid um, if you see it now. But when I saw that as like a six year old, it broke me. I, it was absolutely terrifying. And I remember I was on some kind of like a camping trip. We were staying up at somebody's cabin. And I think we either saw the movie on TV or somebody, you know, rented it uh, from a video store. Um, but the only thing I remember was that the cabin had this, like, um, duct work in it that was the same kind of silver color as this freaky robot lady. And, man, I had trouble sleeping that night. And I think ever since then, body horror has uh, has always gotten to me. 
uh, definitely this movie, I remember when I first saw it, uh, The Fly, I mean, uh, got to me on that level the same way. So uh, we get uh, this moment uh, from uh, Seth and Ronnie where he decides he's going to uh, teach this machine to go crazy for Flash. Let, let me play you that. The computer is giving us its interpretation of a stake. It's uh, translating it for us. It's rethinking it rather than reproducing it. And uh, something is getting lost in the translation. The flesh. It should make the computer uh, crazy. But it doesn't. Not yet. I haven't taught the computer to be made crazy by the uh, flesh, the poetry, the stake. So I'm going to start teaching it now. Now, this whole first act of the movie is you know, really building up the romantic relationship between Seth and Veronica. And uh, having Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis be a real-life couple, I think, really sells this. Um, their love for each other, their, you know, his awkwardness, um, her kind of enjoying being with someone who is sweet and kind rather than uh, her ex-boyfriend, the dick, who won't seem to leave. Um it works, and you need this. This part of the movie, even Howard Shore's score, which we haven't talked about yet, Howard Shore, uh, most famous for doing Lord of the Rings, um, his score here is extremely operatic. Um, and the, the part of the score that opens the movie is very dark. And a lot of the score is very, it's either bombastic and operatic or like kind of dark and mysterious. But in this first uh, third of the movie, it almost hits points where it's like a romantic comedy in its lightness. And man, do you need that to carry you through the next two thirds of this movie? Um, it makes everything feel that much more tragic. Capital T tragic. This is a Shakespearean tragedy in the way that, like, you you know from the jump, um, this is not probably not going to go well. Um, the same way that you know, in Romeo and Juliet, a person walks out onto the stage, and the first thing that happens is this guy says, "These two lovers are going to die." Um, the, the, the reason a tragedy like this works is the, the tension is you want them so badly to pull out of what you know is a nosedive, uh, and they won't, or they can't. Um, it, every time I watch this movie, um, we're now up to the part where they, they, they have a little bit, there's a little bit of tension in the relationship because Stathis is hanging around too much and, uh, Jeff Goldblum is feeling insecure. He decides to get drunk. And now that he's had success teaching the machine to transport the baboon without a problem, he says, I'm going to transport myself. He was going to wait for Veronica to be there to watch him do it, but he says, screw it, I'm going through. And of course, he faithfully goes through. There is a We see there is a fly in the machine with him, and he comes out the other side, uh, you know, all 80s Jeff Goldblum, uh, you know, looking very fit. Uh Every time we get to this part of the movie, no matter how many times I've seen it, the more I see it, the more I so desperately want him to not get in the machine. Please, you know, check the thing to see if there's anything else in there. Please don't do this. Please think this through. Please check the computer programming a little more. Um, there's, it's so unbelievably powerful how much you don't want this to happen because you like their relationship so much and you like him and you don't want to see him suffer, especially given how extreme the suffering will become. Um, the next act of the movie, he, he is, you know, he feels energized by this. 
Um, but he, something is clearly wrong. Although he is very, all of a sudden, superhumanly strong um, and energetic, uh, he is, uh, you know, something, something else is off. He's talking a mile a minute. His, uh, he's eating tons of sugar. And the things he's saying don't even fully make sense uh, to Veronica. Here's a little scene of them in a, a restaurant shortly after the teleportation where he's talking a mile a minute. So I asked the computer if it had improved me, and it said it didn't know what I was talking about, and that's made me think very carefully about what I've been feeling and why, and I'm beginning to think that the sheer process of being taken apart atom by atom and put back together again, why it's like coffee being put through a filter. It's somehow a purifying process. It's purified me. It's cleansed me. And I'll tell you, I think it's going to allow me to realize the personal potential I've been neglecting all these years that I've been uh, obsessively pursuing goal after goal. Do you normally take coffee with your sugar? What? You know, I just don't think I've ever given me a chance to be me. But, of course, interestingly, at the exact same moment that I uh, achieved what will probably prove to be my life's work, that's the moment when I started being the real me, finally. So, uh, listen, uh, not to wax messianic, but uh, it may be true that the synchronicity of those two events might blur the resultant individual effect of either individually. But it is uh, uh, nevertheless also certainly true, I will say now, however uh, subjectively, that uh, human teleportation, molecular decimation, breakdown, and reformation is inherently purging. It makes a man a king. From the moment I walked out of the pot, I felt like a million bucks. You know, I think I am going to have a, a cannoli after all. Waiter! I mean, what an accomplishment. But what have I really done, though? All I've done is say to the world, let's go, move, catch me if you can. Waiter, Jesus Christ. What's notable about this is uh, that the latter half of this crazy dialogue from, from Jeff Goldblum was written by him uh, the night before they shot the scene. He felt like he wanted to add something to it because it wasn't, uh, you know, frantic uh, enough uh, and long-winded and crazy enough. Um, this is something that will be more subtle throughout the movie. Yes, his, his, the physical transformation we're about to witness is going to be grotesque and you know in your face. But he's also undergoing a lot of mental transformation. And we start to wonder you know, how much of this is the fly uh, taking over. Because uh, Veronica doesn't want anything to do with him um, at this point because of his behavior. She leaves. Um, he goes out and arm wrestles a dude and like snaps his arm in half. Uh, and, uh, she comes back to see him, uh, after he's taken this woman to bed and she delivers the famous tagline, be afraid, be very afraid. Um, Brundle shoes her away. Uh, and then, you know, he finally begins to see what she sees, which is that his skin isn't looking so good anymore. And there's these weird hairs that she's just told him are insect hairs that she had them analyzed. And so he, uh, he goes into his bathroom and this is when things start to get real gross. His fingernails start coming off. He starts pulling them off and pus starts shooting out. Uh, it's real gross. And this leads to him discovering what happened. He goes to his computer and tries to understand, you know, what went wrong with the teleportation. And the computer lets him know there was a fly in the machine with you. And he says, well, what happened to the fly? And he says, and the machine says, fusion. <laughs> and he says, where? And he says, at the, the machine tells him, at the cellular genetic level. Uh, it was the machine's way of being lyrical with flesh that it couldn't reconcile that there were two different organisms in there 
And so it just solved the problem by being a gene splicer, uh, as he says, and a very good one. Uh, now, if I wanted to nitpick, the science of this is a little fishy because in reality, there's so many organisms in the air around us living, you know, mites living on your skin and bacteria inside and out um, that there's no way, uh, you know, everything that went through that machine that was alive, it would be transforming into a, an amoeba. You know, it wouldn't work. Um, but I can't nitpick that because then there'd be no movie. So uh, we'll just say it only applies to macro organisms for some reason. The machine, the, or I'm sorry, the, the movie kind of plays fast and loose with the, you know how this technology works because ultimately that's not the point of the story. We, we don't need to know how the machine teleports matter from place to place or why this is the solution the computer came up with. We just need to know that you know with all the red flags we saw before. It doesn't do well with living things. Seth Brundle, we don't know how great he is at computer programming, but clearly. You know, he didn't think through all of the eventualities. He didn't play it all out. He didn't do enough testing. Um, and, you know, now he's in the predicament he's in because of his hubris. Um, Veronica is summoned to his apartment, you know, about a month later. And we see he's now in much worse shape. Uh, his skin is much worse. He's now having trouble walking. Uh, and this is the point of the movie where he most appears like some sort of a person who is sick with a, a more pedestrian terminal illness, something we're used to. Um, it's not clear that this is going to help him, you know, it, it make him transform into a more radical thing. Uh, in fact, you could imagine if someone's DNA really were mixed with a fly's DNA somehow, probably the result would just be a generalized deterioration and death, not the, you know, um, crazy transformation that's to come. Um, but you know, th this is helpful. This, you know, they, they rekindle their relationship and now it becomes about her documenting him, his efforts to try and undo this, the way in which his body is transforming. Uh, and really this is the most like, you know, hospice care kind of part of the movie. She's with him. She's there to support him and, um, help him through this crisis, but things get worse and worse and worse. He continues to look worse. Uh, at which point she, you know, she finally realizes, uh, that she is pregnant. She tells Stathis this and she's terrified because she doesn't know if she got pregnant with Seth's baby before he went through the teleporter or after. And what is it she's actually pregnant with? Now, can canonically, it turns out to be after because of the fly too, uh, which we won't really need to talk about. Um, but I think I'd rather treat this as a standalone thing and let it be mysterious and unknown, you know, whether this is a, a normal uh, Jeff Goldblum baby or a, uh, a quarter fly baby with Veronica. Um, there is a scene where she decides I'm going to tell Seth about this problem. Um, but what he says to her is so crazy and monstrous that she decides she can't go through with it and tell him. Um, I want to play this uh, this monologue here about insect politics uh, that he gives. Let me uh, give you a clip of that here. You have to leave now. And never come back here. Have you ever heard of insect politics? 
Neither have I. Insects don't have politics. They're very brutal. No compassion. No compromise. We can't trust the insect. I'd like to become the first insect politician. You see, I'd like to, uh, but oh, I'm afraid. Um, I don't know what you're trying to say. I'm saying. Saying I'm an insect who dreamt he was a man and loved it, but now the dream is over and the insect is awake. No, sir. I'm saying I'll hurt you this day. he uses that the insect is now awake um now if someone tells you they're quote woke uh that's a good thing if you ever if you're having to be someone who's conservative and listens to this and is like ah that woke bullshit just think about what woke actually means what that means in a political context is a person who is woke is someone who is cognizant of the fact that there's injustice in the world and that you have a duty to try and do something about it that's all that means um, so when you come to a person's aid or, you know, a, the raid of a, a protected group who is suffering to some degree, uh, that's a good thing. And so you, if, if you hate that, you should challenge yourself as to why am I against that? Um, but in a horror movie, when someone says some, th- that they are awake, um, that is reason for immense concern. That is, you know, sometimes they are activated. Uh, evil is about to happen. Um, that, that is a very scary thing to hear. Um, and it's interesting because he he talks about how he is basically losing himself. He you know he says I'm I'm an insect who dreamed I was a man. Um, this is where he is the the most divorced from his former humanity. Um, and we know anyone who's seen the movie knows that like you know his his baggy gross skin is in fact hiding something worse underneath. Um, you don't know that the first time you see the movie, so it's a great surprise when that happens later. But here, you know, it's very clear he is, you know, um, he looks like he's going to die soon. His skin is bloated and, like, it's this sad brown color. It's, you know, it's kind of, you know, um, becoming distorted in all sorts of ways. Um, his, you know, he's he's now naked. Uh, he's missing his genitals. Those have fallen off. They're in his uh, little museum of natural history that he keeps of his former body parts, his fingers, some of them have fused together. Uh, he, it's really bad. Um, but not just how he looks, but his his outlook is so bleak. But for a long time, he, he thought, you know, he could fix this. Um, and ultimately, the only solution he can find, which he does not tell her yet, is that if he goes through the machine again with another human, he's hoping that fusing more human DNA into his genome will dilute the fly DNA and solve the problem. Now, of course, the big problem with that is where do you get the human to go with you? <laughs> um, but that's the, the solution he hits on. 
unfortunately, on her way out of this um, uh, Seth's apartment or lab, uh, she talks to Stathis down on the ground and tells her, you know, tells him, I got to get an abortion now. I need this thing out of me. She's already by this point had the nightmare uh, of giving birth to a maggot. But unfortunately, Seth overhears this. So when she is uh, alone at this medical center, surgery place, uh, Planned Parenthood, whatever it is, he comes bursting through the window, grabs her, you know, uh, universal monster style and jumps out with her, which prompts Stathis to go after uh, them with a gun. He arrives at their apartment uh, or Seth's place. Uh, Seth uses his disgusting uh, fly vomit to dissolve his hand and um, leg. And when Veronica begs him to stop, that's when he reveals, you know, we're going to go be the ultimate family. And he grabs her by the hand to drag her into the pod. Um, This is really, uh, you know, this is the kind of abusive behavior that goes with, like with an abusive relationship, like she would have had at, maybe with Sathas, um, you know, there's something extremely, you know, he's taking away her agency. He's, you know, he is truly being a monster, which in fact he's about to become because she tries to stop him by grabs his jaw, which comes off in her hand. And that's like the load bearing jaw that sets off his final transformation where his skin peels away. And we see the hideous bug monster underneath nick- nicknamed by the crew as the space bug. Uh, this is, uh, I remember the first time I saw this, I couldn't believe the thing that came out of him. Um, and the transformation is so gross. Like his, they, they developed this thing where it would push out from inside of a model of Jeff Goldblum's head. And it does this, it kind of expands. And, and so the head falls apart. And the, like the coup de gras is that his eyeballs just turn into jelly and just drop right out of his head to reveal the, the thing underneath. The design of this thing is incredible, and it's in fact the first thing that they designed because the the makeup folks knew that they would have to work backwards, you know, from this to figure out how Jeff Goldblum was going to transform into this. That, that you know, all the stages along the way, uh, and you can go online on, on YouTube and you can see uh, there's a, a great little shot of uh, or a video where Chris Wallace, um is going through a bunch of little maquettes, like mock-ups and drawings of alternative ideas for. This final stage, and uh, I think they hit on the right one. It is definitely the most extreme and the grossest, which is why David Cronenberg liked it the best. But I think what's really notable about it is kind of how uh, uh, sickly it is. That it's not like a perfect fusion of man and fly. It is, you know, what you would expect from this machine. It it's asymmetrical and weird and sickly looking, and it does not look like a viable organism. It it looks that you know that this is incredibly painful. Uh, to exist as this thing. And that comes through in Goldblum's performance as well before it's, you know, this puppet, um, the way he twitches and like kind of winces and, you know, makes these noises. Um, you can tell this is extremely painful for him. The bug is itself, you know, a, not just one puppet, but a series of different puppets and gags. They were very cognizant of the fact that in a lot of these transformation scenes from like, say American werewolf in London, that, that was like a, a transforming outward where a person's arms and legs would like grow and things would expand. They would put like a, you know, some kind of a, basically a bladder underneath latex fake skin 
and then they would just pump that thing up so it expanded and looked gross. They said, that's not what's happening. This is the opposite of that. This is the outer shell of something falling away to reveal something underneath. So they had to rethink the way all of these transformation things are done. And then they had to have a puppet that could deliver. And it was even hard. It took two weeks just to shoot what's basically the last maybe three minutes of the movie um, because it, you know it, it was so tricky to get all of these shots where they could fit the thing and you wouldn't see the puppeteers in the shot uh, and they could get this ungainly thing to you know make the body movements they needed to grab something and they needed to do something um, they couldn't do that you know very easily it was very very tricky to do but I'm getting away from the point that this is the emotional payload of everything we've we've known from the beginning this is a movie this is a horror movie without a lot of like scares in it there's not a lot of like jump scares or, you know, crazy things that happen along the way. Everything in this movie that is horrific is intensely gradual by design. Um, and every time you see Seth Brundle, you're, you know, you think to yourself, oh, God, can this get any worse? How much worse is this going to get? And where's the bottom? And what does it look like? So when we finally get there, we have this intense transformation. Howard Scores, uh, Howard Score, Howard Shore's score is booming at us and the the terror of it the unimaginable disgust because this is i mean the whole movie is hard to watch but this thing is really hard to look at it is you know in, think of all the revulsion you feel when you just see a spider in your house now imagine this you know uh jeff goldblum's size you know six foot four he's big uh it's, you know, this giant hideous um twisted monstrosity um, that used to, but it works not just because it's gross, but because this used to be someone that Veronica loved, someone we as the audience cared about. The emotional connection you have to this character makes the horror with what should be sort of just, you know, intellectually, you know, is, hey, it's a puppet. This hits so hard. It's so many emotions all, you know, about, you know, again, all the stuff about mortality, all the stuff about your human uh, frailty, the desperation, you know, the understanding that he's, you know, why he is so desperate to undo this at any cost. His, you know, the madness that he's been exhibiting because his his thinking is now, you know, distorted from his half fly brain, um, and Veronica's screaming. The the you know, all of it is coming to a head at once. And he drags her into the pod. He sets off the sequence. He gets himself into the second pod where it's going to go to the third one, which we know is unreliable. Um, Stathis comes, you know, he kind of comes back from his shock at having his limbs barfed off. Uh, he grabs the gun. He's able to shoot the gun at the cable connecting Veronica's pod to the system. So now the machine is not going to have her to fuse with him. He, uh, the uh, Seth Brundlefly, starts bashing at the door of the telepod to get out because he knows whatever's about to happen is not what he planned on, and he's already had enough accidents with this thing, and it's about to get worse because he breaks down the door and he's halfway out of it when the teleportation sequence fires, and it teleports him and half of the door, you know, and and the housing of this thing into the third telepod. There's a moment of dread. We get like this breather where he's no longer an immediate threat because he's been, uh, you know, derezzed or whatever. He's been disintegrated. But we see the machine go through its the the now familiar sequence of 
putting him back together, the, the numbers and things we see on the screen. And we hear the sound of the third telepod firing. And the sound that Mick comes out when the door opens and he like flops out of the thing, this this hideous scream. I really want to highlight the sound design here because as, as cool as the visuals are and as affecting as they are, there's a lot of great sound design. The weird like rattle in the way he breathes um, before, the kind of weird flying noises he makes once he's made the final transformation. Um, a lot of this stuff is really affecting because of the sound. And this last scream, I don't know if it's Goldblum screaming with like a filter on it or where it comes from, but it sells the like ultimate agony of the state he's in where we see that now not only is he a hideous fly creature but he's now been merged with the telepod there's you know metal sticking out of his back and this like he has this long tail that's like fleshy but we can see there's like a cable and wires in it uh it's truly like if, if it couldn't have gotten any worse it just did and he crawls towards veronica who is you know holding the gun and she can't do it and he grabs the gun with his weird little pincer and we think he's gonna do something but all he does is put the gun to his head. And even though it's a puppet, you know, this weird puppet with, you know, compound eyes and no, no recognizable human features, they sell that this is, you know, he's asking her to put him out of his misery, which she does. Uh, she fires the gun with a shower of flesh and sparks again. Like he's truly, you know, become one with this machine. Now he's, you know, it's a twisting of, of flesh and, and uh, science. Uh, and he's dead, and that's the end of the movie. Um, it ends, you know, after th this incredibly emotional thing. It just ends, and you're left to just sit there with this. We, you know, there were um, there's a lot of deleted scenes for this movie uh, that are worth talking about because they're interesting. But I'm glad they're not in the final thing. Uh, number one, uh, there's a scene where he, after uh, Brundle hits on the idea of fusion, he tries fusing a cat and uh, his second baboon, uh, which fuses them into this hideous monkey cat creature that attacks him, and then he has to kill that with a lead pipe. Um, it, it's interesting, but it's also, it, audiences immediately were like, I'm not on this guy's side anymore. He he, he, he tortured an animal and killed it. Uh, so I'm glad it's not in the final movie. Um, there's another point where um, he's got this weird, like, lesion on his side. In fact, he jokingly kind of uh, points to it, and he goes, ah, what's this? Ah, well, I don't know. It's one of the best line readings in the movie. He's so nonchalant about whatever. He's got so many weird things happening. This one barely moves the needle. Um, but at one point um, after this, the, uh, an insect leg bursts out of that part of his abdomen, uh, which he then, I think, gnaws off and throws away. Uh, it's cool and it's gross, but it also uh, it undermines the final reveal because up until that point, we don't know that his body is basically a cocoon for this space bug underneath. Um, this would kind of spoil that reveal. And now you're just going, okay, well, I'm just waiting for him to see what else is under there. Um, so I'm glad that's gone. Uh, another notable one is that there were a bunch of different endings where there's uh, somewhere she's in bed with Stathis at the end, indicating they got back together. Um, she has a dream of giving birth to a baby uh, with beautiful butterfly wings, which is kind of an interesting lyrical ending, but I don't think the... Um, one, I think it's a little weird. I don't think it would have worked, and it doesn't work as well as the like gut punch ending that's the, where it just cuts off after the death. Um, but also the, the the like just the puppetry of this butterfly baby. You can find this online uh, on on YouTube and watch it. 
I don't think it works. Um, it's it just it does. It's not convincing enough. So that kind of it, you can't have that be the last thing you see. I, I'm not saying there isn't a possibility for a denouement in this movie, um, but it, none of the ones that exist, the ones that were filmed, work. And I, I think ultimately the film probably is better off for just leaving the where it ends. This is the end of their story. We're left to wonder what she's going to do with the baby. Um, we're left to wonder what the the aftermath of this is going to look like in terms of people. You know, are they going to destroy the telepods so no one finds them and tries to replicate this experiment? Uh, you know, does do people find the you know the rest of the body of Seth Brundle and test it or you try to figure out what to do with it? Um, there's all these unanswered questions um, that unfortunately are sort of answered by the fly too, uh, which again I'm going to leave alone because it doesn't. You know, this movie is a big metaphor. It's a big emotional piece, and it, it you know it ends where it need the story ends where it needs to end. The Fly 2 really only happens because of, you know, studio pressures and marketing and wanting to make a quick buck. Um, but uh, it, it didn't actually end there. Not only was there a Fly 2, there was, uh, I know there were some comic books done. And more strangely, uh, the there was an opera made uh, that was directed by David Cronenberg and the music was done by Howard Shore. Um, so I'm going to give you a little clip of that just so you can hear it. Here you go. I don't know that musically it's any good or fun to listen to. I do think the story actually is very operatic and, and works. The concept of making an opera out of this is not crazy. Um, but to me, this is one of the best horror movies ever made because there is so much thematically rich material about the nature of humanity. Um, now, science gone wrong is you know obviously much older than the fly you go all the way back to say frankenstein and mary shelley had already kind of nailed this concept of you know we we went too far um we 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 as jeff goldblum would later say in jurassic park um you know we we thought we were too busy worrying about if we could to think about if we should um this movie is that It, it is about you know the hubris of science gone wrong but to me, that's just the plot, is the science gone wrong. Um, more important is the emotional um, truth behind all of that. The, the fact that it's the, the, the feeling of desperation as your body is unraveling and what you would do to undo that, what that does to the people who love you, the people around you, um, and, and how that makes us into something that we we aren't you know it trans it is transformative to decay and to die um even if jeff goldblum was not turning into a hideous fly creature his desperation to avoid 
the deterioration of his body, you know, again, without the, the sci-fi elements uh, is very understandable. And it, and it trans, it, it transforms him into something he is not at an emotional level, not just in the physical sense. Um, that it is a, you know, to borrow from another story about a person who turns into a bug, it is a metamorphosis. It is about losing yourself um, because of your situation. You, you forget who you are and you, you become a kind of a slave to your circumstances and you let that dictate your moral choices rather than you you know, you, doing what you know to be right. Uh, and in fact, really, Brundle regains his humanity in that last moment where she asks, where he asks Veronica to euthanize him. Um, because he's, you know, he understand he, you know, he can't, he finally is, you know, reconciled with the fact that he can't undo the damage he's done to himself. There is no going back. There is no happy ending for them or him. Uh, and he does the responsible thing. You know, he, he, he chooses to end his suffering on his terms, uh, such as they are. Um, it, it's, you know, very hard to look at the face of this, of the space bug and try to see that there's a, a person, a scared person in there. Um, but I think it does, it works. Uh, we, we've invested enough in Jeff Goldblum's character and their relationship to see, you know, when despite this thing just being a very, very effective and gross puppet, um, the reason it's there, there's lots of movies that have gross puppetry and things in them, but they don't work on this level. They don't hit you in your gut the way this movie does, and it's why after you see it, yes, the disgusting images are going to be behind your eyelids for a while, you know, at least a few days, but the existential questions that the movie poses are going to stay with you forever because we never really escape those existential questions. They're always there. Um, most of our time we, we spend trying to avoid those questions. And I don't think there's very many horror movies or even very many movies that force us to stare that in the face the way this movie does. Um, so uh, again, thank you for coming on this journey with me. Uh, to talk about one of my personal favorite movies. Uh, I hope you liked it. Um, if you have feedback, please uh, send it to at NostalgiumPod. Uh, that's our handle on Twitter. Uh, we're also, you can also find us on Instagram, but that, that's our primary portal is through the, the Twitter page. Uh, of course, do all the things that you do when you like a podcast. Tell people about it. Go on uh, iTunes or Stitcher or wherever and like, rate, subscribe, uh, You know, drop reviews for us. And uh, we'll be back next week. Uh, talking about uh, a, a much lighter subject, although there is one parody of The Fly in this group that has been done, uh, and that is to talk about The Simpsons Treehouse of Horror. Uh, that's our episode that's going to come out on Halloween, uh, and I couldn't think of something more fun to do uh, than that. Um, it's just a, you know, a, a, a darn good time after a, a very feel-bad movie. A very excellent, but a very feel-bad movie here. Um, so, uh, until then, uh, we'll see you for the next entry in the Nostalgium Arcanum. Help me. Help me. Sucker. <laughs>